collaboration with the security, defense and security forces, with the administration in order to prevent and to be able to arrest those terrorists. Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab has killed Somalia's former defense minister with a car bomb in the capital Mogadishu on Monday. Al-Shabaab, which is aligned to Al-Qaeda, told news reporters it planted the car bomb that killed Muhayyadeen Mohammed, who was also an advisor to the Speaker of Somalia's parliament. Mohammed was briefly defense minister in 2008 during Somalia's transitional federal government, which was backed by United Nations and had fought alongside African Union peacekeepers to push al-Shabaab out of Mogadishu and other major cities. Al-Shabaab has frequently targeted government officials and lawmakers vowing to attack Western targets at home and abroad. Ugandan police on Monday briefly detained opposition leader Kiza Besinge and fired tear gas to disperse hundreds of his supporters in the capital Kampala. Besinge and six other candidates are seeking to end President Yoweri Museveni's 30-year grip on power. A government spokesman said all campaigning has been prohibited in Kampala's central business district where supporters of Besinge's Forum for Democratic Change Party were heading. The opposition leader has lost three previous presidents elections against Museveni and has been arrested many times with police accusing him and his supporters of holding illegal rallies. The United States is training Cameroon military fighting Boko Haram terrorism techniques of defecting and counteracting landmines and explosive devices. The training comes at the backdrop of increasing use of landmines and suicide bombings by the terrorist group. Moaki Kinzaka reports. 300 American Marines have been deployed to the Central African nation, one of the countries taking part in a joint regional task force to fight the militants group alongside Chad, Niger, Benin and Nigeria. They have also provided war equipment to Cameroon. Boko Haram has killed more than 20,000 people, according to the United Nations. And finally, the South African government has distanced itself from reports of planned meetings between South African authorities and the newly appointed first vice president of South Sudan, Riek Mashar. Mashar arrived in the country on Sunday on a private visit. His spokesperson reportedly released a statement saying that Mashar is on a peace mission to meet the political leadership in the capital, Pretoria. However, international relations spokesperson Nelson Khwete says no official meetings have been scheduled. We have not scheduled any official engagements or any engagements whatsoever with him in South Africa. The South African authorities are, however, prepared to meet with the first vice president in Dubai in South Sudan. South Africa will continue to support uh, all efforts aimed at sustaining peace and stability in South Sudan, and uh, we believe that uh, we will be able to make a contribution in that regard uh, through official channels. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilintinzi. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest.
Thank you very much, Anela, for the news update. Your time is 17.06 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, one person was killed and 32 others, most of them being women and children, injured in a series of bomb explosions that rocked Burundi's capital, Puchumbura, this morning. Burundi's security minister says the incident is a terrorist attack aiming at disturbing innocent people. Bernard Bankukira reports from Puchumbura. Grenade explosions were reported in separate places in the capital Bujumbura. The first blast was heard around 8 o'clock near a filling station at the heart of the city, not far from the Independent Square and a few meters away from a police post. According to a witness, a man in a taxi threw a grenade which exploded, injuring six people on the spot. At the same time, other explosions followed in different areas, injuring more people as an 11-year-old boy lost his life in a blast that occurred at a famous marketplace commonly known as Bujumbura City Markets. Several cars were also damaged. In total, six grenades were thrown in different areas within a period of an hour. According to Burundi Security Minister Hutu Darius, that were attacked, the incident is a terrorist attack launched against peaceful people with the aim of creating panic. Alengium Bunyoni vows to hunt down perpetrators and bring them to justice. These are uh, terrorist attack, as you can uh, realize it, because those uh, criminals are really launching grenades in a peaceful population. People, uh, women, children, and uh, as we are talking, uh, we have uh, around uh, 30 wounded people. Most of them are uh, women and uh, children. And, uh, one child is, uh, is dead because of those uh, grenades. These are terrorist acts that we must fight against as Burundi people, as security forces. Burundi has decided to fight against terrorism in Africa and around the world. And Burundi will manage everything possible to fight against terrorism in Bujumbura. We are calling up Bujumbura population to continue collaboration with the security, defense and security forces with the administration in order to prevent and to be able to arrest those terrorists. They can't move once again because all dispositions have been taken so that we can be able to prevent and to fight against them, to arrest them and to put them before judicial organs. Minister Alingum Bunyoni announces to have seized several equipment used by perpetrators as one of them is already in the hands of security forces for investigation. One of them is uh, already arrested. We still investigation about him and about their network. We have uh, also seized uh, one motorcycle used by those criminals, used by those terrorists. We have also seized some other equipment that they were using in, in order to, to hide themselves, etc. So the investigations are going on and we are sure that police, uh, in collaboration with the other security partners that we do have, will be able to really investigate, find them, arrest them, and destroy their network in Bujumbura and in other areas of Burundi. Security was tightened in hours that followed the attack till late afternoon. Any crowding in the inner city was immediately disbanded. Police on high alert were deployed in big numbers in many areas across the capital, 
as motorcyclists were banned to arrive to the center of the town. The incident occurred as the European Union foreign ministers were expected to sit on this Monday and decide on strengthening economic sanctions on Burundi following the failure of talks to end a political crisis in Burundi, which has already cost life to more than 400 people, as 250,000 others fled to neighboring countries. Burundi is in a political crisis since April 2015, following President Pirankulonziza's will to stand for a controversial term, a move that triggered a violent conflict still underway. Last year, the European Union imposed the asset freezes and travel bans on four officials close to Nkulonziza, were accused of using excessive force during clashes in the run-up to his re-election, inciting violence and hampering a political solution to the crisis. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira, reporting from Bujumbura. The United States is training the Cameroon military fighting Boko Haram and terrorism techniques of detecting and counteracting landmines and explosive devices. The training comes at the backdrop of increasing use of landmines and suicide bombings by the terrorist group. Moki Kinzaka reports from Yaoundé. Kwene Bertus, one of Cameroon's senior military officials fighting the Boko Haram insurgency, says the terrorist group's ability to launch massive attacks has been drastically reduced by raids organized by Cameroonian and Nigerian soldiers on all of their strongholds in the border regions. He says the terrorist group has then resorted to suicide bombings and the use of landmines. They put explosives on the road. They know that when the car will pass on that explosive, everything will blown off. So it, it is their, their new strategy that they, they use now. Even that day when they came and attacked uh, Kolfata, they were explosive was uh, between Kerawa and us, many. And other one was between Amshide and us. They knew that those friends, those army friends who will come to help us, will pass on those explosives and, and will be destroyed. Last month, Cameroon closed some of its borders with Nigeria, frequently used by the insurgents. Government spokesperson Isa Chiruma Bakari said several dozens of people had died from suicide bombings and the country had incurred human and material losses from landmines planted by the insurgents. General Jacob Koji, commander of Cameroon's troops fighting Boko Haram, says faced with this new form of Boko Haram insurgency, Cameroon's defense ministry solicited the assistance of the United States government to update the response capacity of its troops. We are so grateful for this opportunity and uh, since our hierarchy has uh, appreciated this course, uh, we are following it with very, very big interest. This is something additional to what we were uh, using and then having as an expertise or capability and uh, we are very sure that uh, technically or psychologically we'll have improvement in our ranks. Experts from the American Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigations, FBI, trained the soldiers on detecting and counteracting explosive devices. Christian Erhard, senior official in charge of security at the U.S. Embassy in Yaoundé, Cameroon, says they received the mandate of the American government to help Cameroon meet this new security challenge. Boko Haram is a threat. It threatens the entire region and the stability. And the United States is committed to helping Cameroon and the partners in the region with ensuring the stability so that they can lead the prosperous lives that they deserve to live. 
Besides the training and upon request of Cameroon, 300 American Marines have been deployed to the Central African nation, one of the countries taking part in a joint regional task force to fight the militants group alongside Chad, Niger, Benin and Nigeria. They have also provided war equipment to Cameroon. Boko Haram has killed more than 20,000 people, according to the United Nations, displaced hundreds of thousands of people, attacked mosques, churches, palaces, homes, markets and schools, and kidnapped scores of girls and young women. Two years ago, the United States declared Boko Haram a foreign terrorist organization and placed a $7 million bounty on Boko Haram leader Abu Bakao Shekau to help bring him to justice. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 17.16 right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The program you listen to is Africa Digest. If you want to find us on email, we are on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spomele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now, Ugandan opposition leader Kiza Besige has been arrested while campaigning in the capital. Besige, who is running for president, was arrested in Kampala, where he was holding holding his last rallies ahead of elections on Thursday. Reports say police whisked him away on a truck as he tried to address a crowd. President Yoweri Museveni, who has led the East African country since 1986, is eyeing a fifth term in the elections, running against seven other candidates, including Basija and former Prime Minister Amamam Babazi. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by our correspondent in Kampala, Tony Singoro. Hello and welcome, Tony. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Tony, could you just tell us about w- the atmosphere in Kampala at the moment? The, the moment that was in Kampala is tense, especially where I am. I am in the neighborhood called Wandagir, whereby Besige is still in Iskra, and the police are everywhere. They have used the tear gas to disperse the crowd that is here in Kampala, Wandagir, because he was going to, for, for a rally in Kampala. You know, they're going the home stretch of the rally as we wait for, 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 for the day, for the D-Day to come. But uh, right now the situation is tense. The police have taken control of one day town and uh, things are not good at all right now. 
Aha. Uh-huh. And have you spoken to locals? What are they saying? What are their thoughts about the arrest of procedure? The, the police have said that um, this was arrested because uh, it didn't comply with, uh, with, the, with the rules of the game, that's, uh, the, 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 the election rules. And um, that's why he was arrested. And um, he was passing through the town and the police said they told him not to go through the town, the middle of the town, and he refused. So the police said they're following the law and that's why he was arrested. Was it common knowledge that the rally was not supposed to take that particular route or the march was not to, supposed to take that particular route? Yes. He, he, he was going through the town and uh, for him he wanted to take Ginger Road but the police told him to take another route and he refused. He said, where I'm going, I'm supposed to go through Ginger Road and uh, that's how the president broke out and said, no, you're not supposed to follow this route here. Just a matter of following the route and a matter of taking the right direction. That's how things fall apart with the police. All right. Do we know where he is at the moment? The moment right now is uh, the, the car. The police is storing the the car for basically. Uh, he, they are taking him back home because uh, the time for campaigns I think is over because the rules say that campaigns uh, in Uganda ends at six, and uh, now the time is over. Now they're storing his car back home. And where is he? Um, you're saying that they are taking his car back, his car back home, and campaigning ended at six in Uganda. Um, but where is Besidje at the moment? The Besidje right now is in his car. He has been sitting in his car for almost uh, two hours since he was uh, he was here in Wandegea, and he has been in his car for, for two hours, and he was just in a relaxed mood and waiting for the situation. Now the students come and. Uh, they're taking him right now uh, back in home. All right. And can you tell us more about um, the preparations now and what else needs to be done ahead of Thursday's elections? The, the, the student round is, is a bit tricky. It's a bit tricky. They can hear that the police is dispersing people. The situation is not so good at all. And uh, we might um, experience the worst, maybe it, especially tomorrow. Because tomorrow he's having his last, uh, last rally around the town. And what I know is we have to insist pass through the town. We are here to see more maybe tomorrow. Mm. Um, and we're hearing noises in the background. Could you just describe what's going on there? Because um, we heard what sounded like a siren and there was what sounded like a shot of sorts. Um, were we hearing correctly? Could you just what? there's another shot again. What's happening at the moment? At the moment, uh, the police is uh, firing tear gas and uh, they're dispersing people. And um, he's a busy I think he's getting out. I haven't seen him somewhere. I think, uh, uh, no, they're arresting someone who's in the busy's car and they're uh, taking him away. There's still three times that, that the police is firing tear gas here and there so that they can dispose of the crowd. And uh, I think at the end of the day, he will, he will be taken back home. I think she, she is the policewoman who has um, been injured and she should be taken away. Uh, I think the situation right now is not uh, so, so good at all. Mm. Uh, do we know how the policewoman that you are talking about was injured? Yes, it's one policeman whom I've seen. She's passed away here and uh, she's been taken to the ambulance right now. And I think she has just been injured. Yeah, do we know how she was injured? Uh, she was hit with something on the forehead, and I uh, saw blood on the forehead. I think she was hit with some, something on the forehead, and uh, she's been taken to the ambulance.
Uh-huh. Um, apart from Besiege, were there any other arrests that took place today? Leori Museveni is in the eastern side of the of the country, that's Jinja, where he's uh, campaigning from because I think he's done with the Kampala. Uh, tomorrow they're having the last rally in, in Kololo, that is uh, within the town. And uh, Amama Bawazi, who is uh, the former prime minister, is also campaigning outside the town. I think uh, by and large, uh, other candidates are campaigning well today. It's only Kiza basically who has got it rough from for the day. All right, and you are telling us that tomorrow is the last day of campaigning. Um, you're saying that Besija is supposed to be in Gambala yet again. Um, could you just tell us about what's supposed to be happening tomorrow? Tomorrow, uh, from the view of things and the way things have happened today, tomorrow we might see more tear gas again. And as we talk right now, the, the car of Besija is being towed away without the with the police, uh, with the policeman's car, and uh, he's serving, he's being sheriff as usual, also the car, and you can hear uh, the, the tear gas and the fire, the fire, the fire bullets everywhere. And um, people are calling, are still calling the car. I think tomorrow the situation might be the same street of today, because what I know is um, tomorrow Bethesda will have to insist to pass through town. And that's another another thing which to complicate the whole situation tomorrow. I'm sure I think in my next will be, be, be something tomorrow. All right, uh, Tony, we just had someone screaming, let him loose. Um, what's going on there? Who's being let loose? She was a, she was a lady who was in a border, border uh, passing very by, but the body is a, is, a, is a motorcycle. And I think when she had that shooting, that that loud bang, I think she, she was so scared. She was all screaming. And right now, the, the, the ambulances are coming where we are right now, and uh, I think they're coming to monitor the situation. But so far, uh, for the last one minute, I think uh, there's, uh, there's no uh, injury at all, and uh, I think this has been told to the police station right now here in Wondergear. All right, thank you very much for joining us, Tony Singoro. You're welcome. Um, Tony Singoro there is our correspondent in Kampala in Uganda. As you are hearing in the background that there is tear gas being fired by police in order to try and disperse the crowd that is at the Besiege rally. And it seems like the situation is really tense at the moment in Kampala in Uganda. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. All right, now, despite calls from local and international communities to urge President John Magufuli of Tanzania to intervene in resolving Zanzibar's political impasse and establish a sustainable institution to run the country, President Magufuli has officially distanced himself from the aisles, saying that he will not interfere the decisions of Zanzibar Electoral Commission, ZEC, for the election rerun. Addressing Dar es Salaam elders, the president made it clear that he would not intervene in the aisles' stalemate 
stalemate following the nullification of the general election by the Zanzibar Electoral Commission last October. Reacting to the speech the president made on Saturday in Dar es Salaam, Dr. Salim Ahmed Salim, a diplomat and former OAU chief secretary who served in various positions in Tanzania, upbeat that the head of state was committed to transforming the country. But there is a need for the president to rethink again on how to solve out the crisis from the Isles. Gabriel Zakaria reports. President John Magufuli has officially distanced himself from the Zanzibar political impasse, citing respect for the legal and the constitutional independence of the Zanzibar Electoral Commission, ZEC. However, being commander-in-chief of the armed forces, the president was quick to declare guaranteed peace and security in any part of the nation, be it Dodoma, Dar es Salaam, Zanzibar or Pemba. He says electoral bodies worldwide are independent and their decisions are binding and free from interference. He shall remain silent on the Zanzibar issues and those in need of legal interpretation of the Zanzibar political standoff should go to court. Lakini kama ilivyo kawaida kwa tumeza uchaguzi zilizo huru duniani. Like other free electoral commissions in the world, no one has the right to interfere by any means. Even heads of states are prohibited to do so. Therefore, the Zanzibar Electoral Commission is a free organ that can make its own decisions without being interfered by anybody. If you see there is no justice, please go to the courthouse to search for the legal interpretations than keeping complaints. As chief of the armed forces, my responsibility is to make sure peace and security is highly maintained in the ISOs. Talking about the Zanzibar political impasse, the president referred to the controversy which emerged shortly after the October 25th elections whereby the main opposition party in the ISOs, the Civic United Front CUF, claimed that its candidate had won before the electoral body made the official announcement according to the law. Dr. Salim Ahmed Salim is a diplomat and a former OAU chief secretary who served in various political positions in and outside Tanzania borders. I wanted to know his position following the speech of President John Magufuli to distance himself from Zanzibar political impasse. The statement was intended to be helpful, but I'm saying, given the reality of the situation in Zanzibar, given the history of the election process, and given the claim, uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the major points which President Magufuli made in his statement was that the election commission is independent, uh, nothing can be done about it, and everything should be left to the, to the election commission. Now, and, and he compared election commission in Zanzibar with the election commission elsewhere in the world. Now, the, the reality is that the election commission in Zanzibar is already uh, has already suffered because of its behavior, because of the behavior of its chairman. And this is important to bear in mind that. During this process, there was resentment both from CCM and from CAF as far as the conduct of the process is concerned. And, and so I think to, to think that nothing happens or, or we just go on, it doesn't matter. You are talking in terms of a divided Zanzibar. You are talking in terms of half Zanzibar. On this half, 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 half on that. And it's unfortunate because we look back, when we look back what has been happening in the past, the decision to create, for example, a government of national unity, Whatever imperfections it may have, but it has created, it has calmed the situation, it has, you know, it has stabilized the position. And one would like to see that this happens, this continues. 
for the purpose of Zanzibar, for the purpose of Tanzania, and for the purpose of the region. Of late, ZEC has declared March 20, 2016, the day for a rerun of the poll. But CUF has categorically rejected the idea, saying it will not take part in the election. All right, so that is Gabriel Zakaria, who is our correspondent in Tanzania, there, telling us about the impasse that's taking place in, um, in Zanzibar. It's 17.30 Central African Time. It's time for news headlines. One person has been killed and 32 others, most of them being women and children, injured in a series of bomb explosions that rocked Burundi capital Bujumbura. Calls for the prosecution of former Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan over corruption intensify. And the South African government distances itself from reports of planned meetings between South African authorities and the newly appointed vice president of South Sudan, Riek Bashar. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It is 17.31 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, Human Rights Watch says in a report released today that hundreds of women and girls raped during Kenya's 2007-2008 post-election violence struggle with devastating physical and psychological health conditions, poverty and social exclusion. The 104-page report is entitled, I Just Sit and Wait to Die. Reparations for survivors of Kenya's 2007 in 2008 post-election sexual violence, the violence that erupted after the dis, this disputed presidential election in 2007 included ethnic killings and reprisals by supporters of both ruling and opposition parties and excessive force by police in crackdowns on protesters. It left 1,133 people dead and displaced approximately 600,000. Agnes Odiambo is a senior Africa women's rights researcher at Human Rights Watch. The report is based on interviews with quite a large number of survivors. That is 163 women and girls who were raped and also who witnessed sexual violence, as well as nine men who were also raped or witnessed sexual violence. The way we went about this report is that we worked together with other organizations in Kenya that have um, worked with survivors of sexual violence particularly during the post-election violence. We also worked with network of other victims of post-election violence who helped us to be able to reach out to these women. It was not an easy exercise, but through contact of who knows who, you know, you interview one woman, she leads you to another woman. This is how we ended up meeting these women. And then we did a face-to-face interviews with all the women 
covering a whole range of issues, uh, including what happened to them at the time, who raped them, whether they sought health care, whether they went to the police and what kind of assistance they got, as well as how the rape has impacted them up to today. And uh, this research actually was quite extensive because we covered five regions in Kenya, that is Coast, Nairobi, Western Nyanza, Drift Valley, and these are the five regions that were most affected by the post-election violence. But those are quite really big chunks of the country. Now, another thing is that what happened, you know, happened at that time, it was 2007, 2008. I mean, that's about eight years ago. Why have yeah. these rape victims been ignored? I can only say that it is uh, a sign of the lack of acknowledgement or the little value that actually the government and other players place on uh, sexual violence survivors. Because if you look at uh, what has happened after the post-election violence, when you know there was a political negotiation and peace came, the government came up with a plan to resettle people who had been chased away from their homes, people who had lost their property, you know, they were given some kind of um, financial compensation, others were helped to buy land and to build houses. That is the government initiative with support from some of Kenya's development partners. But there was absolutely no national initiative to help women and men who had been raped. So it just shows that the government has essentially forgotten them. So, yeah, eight years down the line, the women have not been helped because the government has forgotten them and excluded them. The government does not think this is important, in my view. But now the government has apparently recently promised reparations Mm. which should be designed in consultation with survivors of sexual violence to ensure their full inclusion in all programs. Now what does this mean? So what this means is that uh, in March last year, during the State of the Nation Address, President Kenyatta said that he had formed a fund of 10 billion Kenya shillings for restorative justice for victims. Now, this is not specific to victims of post-election violence or to victims of sexual violence. This is money that is supposed to help all victims who have ever suffered injustice that can be linked to responsibility of the state. So right from about 40, 30 years back, okay? So what we were expecting now would happen is that a mechanism would be put in place to profile and register survivors, to decide what kind of uh, assistance they would get, who would administer it, and through what mechanism. But nothing has happened up to today. Now, you also have to remember that the president said that he directed that this fund be formed because there's a recommendation in the Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission report, which was formed after the post-election violence, that victims need to be compensated. And also because, according to the president, there's not enough evidence to prosecute many of the perpetrators of the post-election violence. Now... (laughs) We want to believe very much that uh, this fund is done genuinely, but there's a concern that probably the government is doing that to refuse to pursue criminal accountability. But all the same, even with this fund having been declared, we are not seeing any movement on that. So we are again starting to question, is this another political gimmick or does the government mean well? And if the government means well, how come one year down the line, this money has not helped a single survivor. We have not seen any activity at all related to that fund. Now, can you take us through what these rape victims went through at that time? 
Well, I have to say that uh, when actually I set out to go to interview these women, I knew that obviously rape is devastating to women, but I did not expect to find the level of brutality and uh, pain that these women were experiencing. When I was interviewing them, they were relating the events as if they had just happened that morning. And these are events that happened eight years ago. The rapes were really brutal. Most of the rapes that we documented were gang rapes. Most of the women were raped by more than four men. In a number of cases as well, women were raped by more than ten perpetrators. Some of the women, they had bottles, guns, and sticks inserted inside their vaginas. There was a lot of physical violence involved in the rape. Some of the women said they were beaten with a heavy object and passed out, and then when they woke up, they found they had been raped, so could not tell how many people had raped them. Others were saying that they passed out during the assault. So a woman would say, I remember four men raping me, and then I passed out. So she doesn't even know how many raped them. That is Agnes Odiambo, who's a senior Africa women's rights researcher at Human Rights Watch, speaking to Josejo Dengake. Science Advances has published a groundbreaking research that reveals that many more people are living under severe water scarcity than previously thought. Ariane Wuxter, professor in water management at the University of Twenty in the Netherlands, says the research has discovered that as many as 4 billion people worldwide are affected by severe water scarcity for at least one month a year, and as thus, this gave them a better understanding of how water scarcity changes over time and from one place to another. Yeah, this research has been done based on new advanced models um, where we really look where precisely how much water is being used in comparison to how much water is sustainably available. And in this way, we were able to map water scarcity at a high spatial resolution from place to place and also at a high temporal resolution from month to month. And in this way, we know how many people are experiencing severe water scarcity, also which part of the year. And in this way, we were able to estimate this 4 billion people facing severe water scarcity worldwide. Now, Professor, as it is that the majority section of our planet Earth is composed of water, why so much people are still living under severe water scarcity? Yeah, that's a very good question. The amount of water on Earth remains the same, so it doesn't get depleted. Also, there is a huge amount of water, but most of it is salt in the oceans. So the issue of water scarcity can only be understood if you understand that the amount of water available every month, every season, is limited by the rain. It is the fresh water scarcity that we need, and there is a certain limited flow available in rivers and groundwater. And since we need this flow for irrigation, for water supply to industries and households, it is important that we don't use more than actually there is. Because you can imagine if you use more than sustainably available, the rivers will be empty and the groundwater level will decline. So the problem is really that in some places, in some parts of the year, the recharge of fresh water is smaller than what you actually need. That is the problem. So the process of warm air going up into the atmosphere and then forming clouds until clouds reach dew point for rain to fall 
Is it uh, diminishing or is it because of the usage of the water? That's why it's becoming scarce? Yeah, the amount of rain is limited. Um, particularly farming is used most of the water for irrigation. And yeah, in the end, if it doesn't rain enough, you need to irrigate. But since it doesn't rain a lot, there's also not much water available in the groundwater and the surface water to use. So the problem becomes manifest in those times of the year that you don't have enough water where the evaporation is larger than the precipitation, or the precipitation can be even zero. So you are losing water, but you don't get water. And if you irrigate the fields, evaporation will only be higher, and you will lose the water. And one time the water will come back as precipitation, but not on the time you need it, on the place you need it, but somewhere else. And that's the problem. The underground water, is it diminishing as well? Or is it becoming replenished from time to time? Now, the groundwater becomes recharged because of the precipitation partly infiltrating to the soil, and in this way it replenishes the groundwater. The issue here, again, is that if you take more from the groundwater than the replenishment rate, then the groundwater level will drop. And this problem we see in many places on Earth. Again, Professor, what's the impact of the water situation from climate change? Now, we did look in our research in the historic period where there has not been so much climate change, but we do other research also on climate change, and we know that two things are happening. On the one hand, the water demand increases because of growing population, and growing demand for biofuels, growing demand for water for agriculture. So the demand for water is increasing. But what we see because of the climate change is that in dry periods of the year, in dry places, the water availability will become even less. So the rain will become less in places where already there is limited rain. On the other hand, there will be more rain in places where there is too much rain, in periods where there is too much rain. So what we see with climate change is the frequency of floodings will increase, and but also the frequency of droughts and water scarcity will increase. So these two things they can happen at the same time. However, the flooding in one part of the year and the drought in another part of the year. So the water scarcity will increase because of climate change in most places on Earth. What's the solution for this whole uh, situation? Now we have a number of proposals and one thing we propose is to have what we call water footprint caps for each river basin on Earth expressed per month. So a water footprint cap shows the maximum footprint you should have in a certain basin in a certain time period. It means water consumption should remain below maximum sustainable water availability so that you don't over-exploit the water resources. Currently, we don't have such caps. And this means that there is no break on the growing water scarcity. So the water demands are increasing all the time because of the growing demands for water. We need to formulate what is maximum sustainable level and then to allocate water use permits to users within this maximum sustainable volume. Also, we propose something else like water footprint benchmarks for products so that we have a reference, what is a reasonable amount of water to use for making a certain product. For instance, a crop. And we know that in many cases, the actual water use for one kilogram of crop is far beyond what is actually necessary if you use better technology, better practice. 
So if we have those benchmarks, then we can ask and urge farmers to use less water to produce the same. That is Arjen Hoekstra, Professor in Water Management at the University of Twente, on the line from the Netherlands, and he was talking to Wandile Kalipa. It's time for your economic news with Wissani Matebula. Thanks, Pumelele. Job losses in South Africa's mining sector are likely to accelerate with mining companies such as Glencore and Anglo-American battling to cope with a global commodity price slump. The government has warned that 32,000 workers in the sector could lose their jobs as metal prices fall due to slowing economic growth in China. Industry officials predict more than 50,000 job cuts. Companies in the industry, which employ about 500,000 people and contribute around 7% to South Africa's GDP, say they have little choice but to cut jobs and close struggling minds to cope. In West Africa, Nigeria State Bank Bank is looking for prospective investors to buy Keystone Bank, which is the last of the nationalized banks yet to be sold. The Asset Management Corporation of Nigeria said in a public notice that it has decided to divest its 100% interest in the bank and ask prospective buyers to submit their bids by March the 4th. Nigeria nationalized three lenders, African Afri Bank, Spring Bank, and Bank BHP in 2011. South Africa's Mineral Resources Minister Mosebenzi Zizwane has reiterated that the rescue operation at Lili Mine in Babaton, near Mpumalanga province has been suspended because it is too risky. Three staff members are still trapped underground in a container that fell into a sinkhole after the collapse of a crown pillar in the mine 10 days ago. Minister Zwane says a meeting will be held with government and mining industry officials to improve safety. After this incident, we'll have a meeting with all the CEOs of the industry and ensure that we map a way forward when we come to issues of health and safety. Before we can even send people further down, let's ensure that it is safe enough for them also to go down and rescue uh, the trapped three mine workers underground. More than a 1,000 workers at South Africa's biggest diamond producer, DBS Venetia Mine, outside Musina in Limpopo province, have downed tools that are demanding to be paid dividends on their shares. Venetia allocated shares to workers in 2006, and they were supposed to mature in April 2014. Mine spokesperson Josephine Peterse, however, says the company has been unable to buy back the shares as it does not have enough money. Peter says say, say they will consider buying back the shares again next year. The European Union foreign ministers say they are prepared to impose more economic sanctions on Burundi. This follows the failure of talks to end a political crisis in the Central African country that has killed more than 400 people. The EU last year imposed asset freezes and travel bans on four officials close to President Pierre Nkurunzinza. The officials are accused of uh, using excessive force during clashes in the run-up to Nkurunzinza's re-election. 
And finally, we go back to Nigeria, where the Naira weakened to a record 345 to the US dollar on the parallel market, increasing pressure on the government to devalue the official exchange rate to narrow the gap and spare Nigerians from huge bills for imported goods. The local currency has eased 1.47% from Friday's close of 340 to the US dollar. And traders say the black market rate has, li- has slipped as Nigerians with school and medical bills to, to pay abroad have anticipated the central bank will stop allocating currency for such payments. The bank has not denied or confirmed any such plans. Meanwhile, tumbling global oil prices have battered Africa's top crude exporter. That's how it's looking this hour. Thank you very much, Ray Sunny, for that update. It's time for your sports news. Here's Mosebudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news. Nigeria's all-important 2017 Africa Cup of Nations Group G qualifier with Egypt has been moved back by three days, according to the Nigerian Football Federation. The clash with the pharaohs of Egypt was earlier scheduled for the 23rd of March at the Amadou Bello Stadium in Kaduna, but will now be played on the 26th at the same venue. Media officer of the Nigerian Football Federation, Amadola Objare says the Confederation of African Football has given its blessings for the new date. So on football news, Nigerian striker Obafemi Martins has joined Chinese club Shanghai Shano in a multi-million dollar deal. The 31-year-old makes his switch from Seattle Sounders where he scored 43 goals in 84 appearances for the MLS club. He joined back in March 2013. Martins was linked with a move back to the Premier League in the January transfer window but British agent Tony Harris along with the players' attorney Sor Rish Abdi brokered the deal, taking the Super Eagle to China instead. Martins, who joins Singhalese striker Demba Ba at the Shanghai Club, becomes the latest high-profile player to make the switch to the cash-rich Super League. Hot golf new South African golfer Brennan Grace has moved into the top 10 of the official world um, golf rankings for the first time. When the rankings were updated after this past weekend's action, Grace moved into 10th position, a new career best. The 27-year-old Grace boasts 10 professional career wins, with his most recent being the European Tour Qatar's Masters last month. His best result in a major championship was third, achieved at last year's PGA Championship. Championship at Wilsingling Straits. They have, um, they have, well, there he finished five um, shots behind eventual winner Jason Day from Australia and two behind runner up Jordan Spieth from America. Grace is the highest ranked South African golfer on the list with Louis Ostazen in 21st position and Charles Schwartzel in 31st position, his nearest ranked compatriots. 
And finally, in Wiltshire Tennis News, South Africa's top men's wheelchair singles player Evans Mariba lost out to Britain's Gordon Reid in the second round of the ABN Ambru World Wheelchair Tennis Tournament in Rotterdam, Netherlands. This after his surprise win against Japanese Takishini Sanada in the first round, Wheelchair Tennis South Africa's general manager Karen Losh has the details. It was a very massive event in uh, the, in the Netherlands. Um, Evans had a really good win in his first round um, against uh, Sonada. Um, he's up against Gordon Reed. Um, Gordon's ranked three in the world. Evans played a good match, but uh, but um, didn't have quite enough on the day. But really a good performance for the tournament for Evans. Well, those are your sports news at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Alright, let's recap our top stories. One person killed and 32 others injured in a series of bomb explosions in Burundi in Bujumbura. And in Uganda, opposition leader has opposition leader rather in Uganda has been arrested um, during his rally there. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from myself. Spumela Lezondi producer Luanda Mawame, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for joining us. You can send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za that is info at channelafrica.co.za You can also send us SMSs that is plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero you can also find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. That is Channel Africa Numerical One on Twitter. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. For myself, Pomela Lezondi, goodbye. This is Africa Digest.
Milan.